Horseshoe Bend National Battlefield Park, National Park Service. This audio described tour was produced in 2020 for Horseshoe Bend National Battlefield Park located in Davidson, Alabama. In March of 1814, at the end of the Creek Indian War, a fierce battle took place between Red Stick Creek warriors and U.S. troops and their Indian allies. The war had significant consequences for the Creek and Cherokee nations, as well as the United States, that are still evident today. The tour is narrated by Kristen Price Wilson and Patrick Legreed. Track 1. Welcome and Device Instructions Welcome to Horseshoe Bend National Military Park and the audio-described tour of our Visitor Center exhibits. The audio-described tour includes 27 tour stops, and most audio tracks are less than two minutes each. Throughout the tour, I will provide all directions and descriptions. A male voice will read any panel text. Just so you are aware, we have tried to make the tour as thorough as possible. However, not all items or images are described in detail. To hear the next track, titled Visitor Center Orientation, enter the number 2 on your keypad. Track 2, Visitor Center Orientation. About 2 minutes. Before we begin the tour of the exhibits, we'd like to provide a brief orientation to the Visitor Center. When you picked up your device, a staff member should have directed you to the right-hand side of the map table. If you are not already there, please pause this track now and make your way to the table. The map table is located in front of the rear windows near the entrance to the museum. An angled shelf about 30 inches above the floor spans the front. Please position yourself on the right side of the table, then turn and face towards the center of the room. The main entrance area is approximately 24 feet wide and 24 deep, with a high ceiling supported by thick wood beams and wrapped in wood-paneled walls. Tall windows span the front and rear walls, providing a view of the tree-filled park beyond. From the map table, facing into the room, the main entrance doors are directly across the room. The information desk is located to the right, near the 3 o'clock position. High on the wall above the desk, a 7-foot by 7-foot aerial photo shows Horseshoe Bend from above. In the center, a tree-filled peninsula is bordered on three sides by a narrow river. Thick forests surround the peninsula and extend into the distance. Continuing clockwise from the desk, a small gift shop is located in the corner of the room. Between the information desk and the gift shop, a short hallway leads to the center's theater. Continuing clockwise around the room, an exit door is located at the midpoint of the lobby's back wall, next to the map. The entrance to the museum is near the 8 o'clock position. The next track is titled Map Table and is in this same location. Please enter the number 3 on your keypad. Track 3. Map Table. About a minute and a half. Please move to the front side of the map table in front of the angled shelf and turn toward the table. Feel free to touch the table to find the tactile indicators mentioned in this track. The tactile map table is about 3 feet square and faces a window. It's oriented the same direction as the park, which is visible outside. Near the center of the map, a few inches below the halfway point, an inset star indicates the location of the visitor center where you currently are. Inset solid red lines indicate the tour road, which is about 3 miles long round trip. Broken black lines indicate nature trails. Beginning in the lower left corner, a slightly wider groove with a rough light blue center indicates the Tallapoosa River. It flows up to the top center of the map, where it forms a tight upside-down horseshoe shape, then flows down and to the right. At the narrowest part of the peninsula, between the river, a short zigzag line indicates where the Red Stick Warriors built their barricade. Panel text reads, A visit to hallowed ground. Horseshoe Bend National Military Park protects the site of the last major battle of the Creek Indian War of 1813-14. The park encompasses 2,040 acres, including a large natural bend of the Tallapoosa River that the Creek call Chotoko Le Tabixi, or Horses Flat Foot, in Muskogee. This now serene landscape offers opportunities to enjoy the natural world, to learn of the events that occurred here, 
and to contemplate all who once lived on this land. The next tour stop, titled The Battle of Horseshoe Bend, is located about two feet to the right of the map table, just before the entrance to the exhibit space. Once there, please enter the number four on your keypad. Track 4, The Battle of Horseshoe Bend, March 27, 1814. About a minute and a half. An exhibit panel about seven feet tall and three feet wide reads. This quiet, secluded spot on the Tallapoosa River was the scene of a fierce battle between Red Stick Creek warriors and U.S. troops and their Indian allies. This decisive battle was the last major engagement of the Creek War, of 1813 and 1814. Creek people from six towns took refuge here during the war. Known as Red Stick Creeks, they constructed a defensive barricade across the peninsula. On March 27, 1814, United States forces, including their Creek and Cherokee allies, attacked. Never before or since in U.S. history have so many American Indians lost their lives in a single battle. The war had significant consequences for the Creek Nation, the Cherokee Nation, and the U.S. that are still evident today. Since the 1950s, Horseshoe Bend National Military Park has been protected by the National Park Service and memorialized in partnership with the Muscogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma, the Porch Band of Creek Indians in Alabama, and other affiliated tribal governments. The next stop, titled Gallery Overview, is located in the museum. Turn with this panel on your left side, then move forward about two to three feet. After you pass through an open doorway, turn left and stop. Then enter the number five on your keypad. Track five, gallery overview. Just over a minute. Please turn with your back to the wall facing into the room. The Visitor Center's museum is an open space about 33 wide and 24 deep. The exhibits, located clockwise along the room's exterior walls, tell the story of the area's original inhabitants, the lead-up to the war, the battle and its aftermath, and the life of Muscogee people today. Near the center of the room, placed on a diagonal and surrounded by rope gallery stanchions, is a carved replica of a traditional dugout canoe. It's about 14 feet long, 2 feet wide, and 2 feet high, including the display base. The canoe is made from a single poplar tree. Long, with flat sides, the canoe was crafted with traditional methods. Creek Indians used fire to burn the center of the log, then scraped out the charred wood with stone and later iron tools. Also located in the room are two backless benches about five feet long. They are moved around from time to time, so please use care when moving through the space. The next track titled A View of Creek Country, takes place in this corner of the room. Please enter the number six on your keypad. Track six, A View of Creek Country. Less than two minutes. As you entered the gallery and turned left, this first exhibit area includes a wall-mounted exhibit panel and, in the corner of the room behind plexiglass, a model of a creek town called a Talwa. In front of the model, an angled shelf about 30 inches above the floor includes pottery pieces and a small remnant of a creek floor cloth. The panel text reads, At the time of the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, the people the English called Creeks were the most powerful American Indians in the southeast. Their ancestors lived here for thousands of years, an ancient presence lingering on the landscape in large ceremonial earthen mounds. The Creek were not a single tribe, but a shared culture of multi-ethnic and multilingual groups, the survivors of a long period of epidemics, fighting, and disruption resulting from Europeans' arrival in the 1500s. Most Creeks spoke variations of Muscogee, as did several other southeastern tribes. By the 1700s, Creeks were the dominant economic and political power in the region. An estimated 20,000 to 26,000 Creek people lived in some 60 tribal towns along the major rivers of what is today Alabama and Georgia, sharing a vibrant, interconnected society. For a more detailed description of the model and artifacts, please press the yellow button now.
It's the center button found two rows below the five on the device's keypad. If you'd prefer to continue your tour, the next stop, titled Creek Life, Kinship and Connections, is located just to the right of the village model. When ready, enter the number seven on your keypad. A Creek Talwa. About two minutes. In the corner of the room behind plexiglass, about four feet wide and three deep, is a model of a typical creek town. It's ringed by lush green trees and sits next to a narrow river, visible in the upper left. Near the center, in a clearing, four rectangular open-air structures surround four logs laid in a cross pattern. Slightly below and to the right sits a round council house or rotunda. Surrounding the formal structures in neat clusters of four, smaller thatch-roofed homes also ring small fire pits. A creek town ceremonial square was laid out according to precise cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. The council house, or rotunda, was usually set in the northwest corner, opening to the southeast. A ceremonial fire rose from a pit within the council house. Towards the left end of the angled shelf, below a square of plexiglass, are two small pieces of pottery found at the Nuyaga town site. At the right, beneath a somewhat larger plexiglass case, is a small brown remnant of floor cloth, about four inches by four inches, also found at the Nuyaga town site. Text inside the case reads, A creek town was the center for political decisions, social events, and economic life. Each was self-governing and had its own chief and council. A ceremonial fire burned in the town square. A talwa was a physical location including homes, but more importantly, it was the people, the people of one fire. The next tour stop, titled Creek Life, Kinship and Connections, is located just to the right of the village model. When ready, enter the number 7 on your keypad. Track 7, Creek Life, Kinship and Connections. About one minute. Creek people identify themselves by their town, their family connections, and their clan. Creek society is matrilineal, meaning that Creeks trace family ancestry through their mothers and the female line. Children grow up as members of their mother's clan. Historically, young Creek men turned to their maternal uncles more than their fathers as role models. Creek men were responsible for building the Talwa's homes and public structures, hunting game, and defending the town. Despite the importance of matrilineal ancestry, men held all leadership positions in the tribe. Women cared for the children, tended the communal fields, and prepared food. They also crafted intricately patterned pottery for cooking and beadwork for clothing. The next tour stop, titled Living on the Land, is located about two feet to the right. When you're ready, enter the number 8 on your keypad. Track 8 Living on the land. About two minutes. Near the bottom of the panel, an image shows an Indian camp in the year 1736. A creek man stands in the center, flanked on either side by lean-to structures made of long, thin branches. Animal hides, stretched for drying, hang between poles. A man and woman sit on the ground below, conversing, as dogs sleep nearby. Creek life revolved around a seasonal cycle of planting, harvesting, hunting, and foraging in the lush southeastern environment. With towns along waterways, people had clean water, floodplains with rich soil for growing food, and a network of rivers and streams for transportation and trade. Abundant forests supplied building materials and plants for medicinal and ceremonial uses. Of the abundant wildlife, deer in particular provided creeks what they needed, meat for food, bones and antlers for tools, skins for clothing and warmth hooves for decoration, and more. For centuries, deer were harvested for survival. As trade with Europeans grew, the demand for deerskins increased, and creek hunters responded with an increased supply. A touchable section of deerskin hangs at the lower right side of this panel. Until deer populations declined, creek hunters and traders sent as many as 200,000 deerskins a year to England, where deerskin became finely crafted leather gloves, hats, and book bindings. In return for deerskins, Creek families got manufactured goods, 
knives and other metal tools, guns, and woven fabrics. At first, Creek people saw these things as luxuries, but over time, they became more essential. The next track, titled The Little Brother of War, takes place about a foot to the right. Please enter the number 9 on your keypad. Track 9, The Little Brother of War. Just over two minutes. Creek men play stickball to demonstrate and develop their physical abilities. The same characteristics that make a great stickball player also make a great warrior. Agility, strength, and endurance. Sometimes called Little Brother of War, this historic game was very serious. Enclosed in a plexiglass case about 10 inches wide and two and a half feet tall are two stickball sticks. Each stick is made from a single slender hickory branch about one inch in diameter. At the top, the branch is turned back on itself, then laced in an X pattern with leather strapping, creating a small pocket about two inches wide and six inches long. A small leather-covered ball, with stitching similar to a baseball, sits in the center of the pocket. Players gather on a field more than 100 yards long with two poles at each end. Using two pocketed sticks, typically made of hickory, to control a small ball, players attempt to move the ball downfield, maintaining control or passing to another player. Using the sticks to toss the ball through the two poles of the opposing team scores a goal. Muscogee people still play stickball using sticks nearly identical to that used in the 18th and 19th centuries. About three feet to the right, enclosed in another plexiglass glass, is a chief's grade trade musket, about four and a half feet tall. The dark wood stock is unadorned. A thin wooden ramrod is mounted below the long, slender barrel. The first white contacts with the creeks sparked an influx of goods, guns, metal tools, clothing, whiskey, and rum. The red sticks sought and used a variety of firearms to supplement their traditional weapons. The next tour stop, titled A Creek Treaty with a New Nation, is located between the cases holding the stickball sticks and the musket. When you're ready, enter 10 on your keypad. Track 10. A Creek Treaty with a New Nation. About two minutes. In the late 1700s, Creek leaders across the southeast faced increased pressure from the newly formed country at their doorstep, pushing west, hungry for land. Britain's 13 American colonies had declared their independence in 1776, becoming the United States of America and winning the American Revolution in 1783. At the war's end, Britain ceded the Creek territory it claimed to the newly formed USA. Within months, white citizens and enslaved Africans in the new state of Georgia began moving into this Creek territory. Creek leaders soon realized they must unite to protect their lands and independence from the new nation surrounding them. At the lower left is an image of a charcoal sketch of a Creek tribal leader, identified as Hapothli Miko. He wears traditional beaded jewelry, including a beaded necklace and earrings, as well as a crescent-shaped medallion, as well as a festooned American military jacket and ruffled shirt. In 1790, delegates from the Creek Nation including Hapothli Miko, traveled to New York City, the first capital of the U.S., to negotiate with President George Washington. The Treaty of New York recognized the Creek Nation as an independent and sovereign nation and promised that the Creeks would retain full rights to all their traditional lands. The tour continues at the next stop, titled Confronting U.S. Expansion. It is located approximately four feet to the right, just past the musket case. Enter number 11 when you're ready. Track 11. Confronting U.S. Expansion. About a minute and a half. After the American Revolution, the young United States faced a major issue, how to acquire more land for a growing population. In the Southeast, most of the land the U.S. wanted for expansion already belonged to the Creek and other tribes, who had occupied it for generations. President George Washington addressed this issue by promoting a plan of civilization for the Creek Nation, led by U.S. Indian agent Benjamin Hawkins. According to this plan, Creek people would eventually abandon their traditional ways and live according to U.S. laws and customs. In 1799, 
Hawkins urged Creek leaders to form a national council with a unified response to U.S. expansion. The council tried to keep peace with the U.S., even as waves of non-Indians moved into Creek territory. After the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, U.S. troops began building a federal road from Georgia to New Orleans. The road cut directly through the Creek lands. By early 1812, nearly 4,000 U.S. traders, settlers, and military troops were traveling the new road through Creek territory. Physically and politically, the federal road divided the Creek nation. The next tour stop, titled The Rise of the Red Sticks, is about two feet to the right and also the last exhibit panel along this wall. When you're ready, please enter the number 12 on your audio tour device. Track 12, The Rise of the Red Sticks. About two and a half minutes. U.S. encroachment onto Creek lands continued to trouble and divide the Creek people. In spring of 1812, Creek warriors killed two men traveling the Federal Road, as well as two white families living along the Duck River in Tennessee. Under pressure from the U.S., the Creek National Council ordered its elite corps of warriors, the lawmenders, to execute Creek warriors who attacked non-Indians. The decision angered many Creek people who believed the right to punish tribal members belonged only to the clans. Warriors opposed to the National Council's handling of U.S. demands took up the red stick in the summer of 1813, attacking council leaders at Tukibachi. Although the National Council existed to maintain the peace, it became the flashpoint for a violent Creek Civil War. For the U.S., already engaged in a war with Britain, the Creek Civil War sparked other fears, what if the Red Stick Creek joined British forces against the U.S.? In the lower left is a color drawing of Shawnee Chief Tecumseh in 1811. He wears a red turban with a single feather tucked in the front headband and a formal red English military coat complete with gold-fringed epaulettes on the shoulders. Tecumseh envisioned an alliance of Indian nations to resist further U.S. expansion and influence on Indian lands and culture. Tecumseh's message resonated with the Red Sticks, who also preferred to maintain traditional ways of life. This influence was one of several factors that contributed to the outbreak of the Creek War of 1813 and 14. To the right of this panel, in the corner of the room, a display case holds a replica of a traditional Creek War Club. For more detailed description, please press the yellow button now. The yellow button is located two rows below the five on your keypad. If you prefer to continue your tour to the next stop, titled War in the Creek Nation, please follow the wall clockwise past the angled display case and stop about two feet past it. Once there, enter the number 13 on your audio guide keypad. The Red Stick of War About a minute and a half Inside the case, behind plexiglass, is a carved wooden club about two feet long and displayed vertically. The narrow end, at the bottom, is round and molded to fit a man's hand, with a slight expansion at the base to prevent it from slipping from his grasp. As it curves towards the top, it flattens and expands, appearing somewhat diamond-shaped at the top, with hard points at the end and on the right leading edge. Red Stick Creeks wielded war clubs and other traditional weapons to destroy enemies in battle. After contact with Europeans, they also used muskets, rifles, and pistols. To raise the Red Stick was to declare war. Often made of hickory, the war club, or Odyssey in Muskogee, was curved on one end and dyed or painted red, the color of war in Creek culture. Sometimes a small blade made of iron, steel, or bone was attached to the head to inflict greater injury. An angled shelf on the front of the case has a round push button towards the right side. When pressed, red light is cast on the pale yellow wood, turning the end red. The next tour stop, titled War in the Creek Nation, is located about two feet to the right of the exhibit case. When you're ready, enter the number 13 on your audio guide keypad. Track 13 War in the Creek Nation. About a minute and a half. The outbreak of violence within the Creek Nation and fear that violence would extend into surrounding U.S. lands escalated tensions in the region. On July 27, 1813, 
Militia from the Mississippi Territory attacked a Red Stick supply convoy at Burnt Corn Creek, killing 10 people. An image in the lower third of the panel shows a block print of an Indian attack on a fortified settlement. Dozens of Red Sticks, wielding hatchets, knives, and muskets, attack white settlers. In the lower left, a shirtless warrior holding a knife crouches astride an unconscious white woman lying on the ground. Near the center, a uniformed U.S. soldier holds a white woman in his arms as she leans into his chest. At right, amidst the chaos, a young boy looks on in fear. On August 30, 1813, Red Sticks retaliated by attacking Fort Mims, a fortified settlement, killing more than 250 people and capturing 100 more. Among the dead were many Mississippi Territory militiamen, enslaved African Americans, women, and children. Only a few escaped the attack. Headlined as the Fort Mims Massacre in the U.S. press, the attack outraged many Americans. The Fort Mims attack transformed what had been an internal Creek Civil War into a U.S.-led war against the Red Sticks. The next tour stop, titled A War-Torn World, is located about two feet to the right. When you're ready, enter the number 14 on your keypad. Track 14, A War-Torn World. Less than three minutes. The Creek War of 1813 and 14, also referred to as the Red Stick War, eventually included U.S. troops and militia from Tennessee, Georgia, and the Mississippi Territory, as well as Creek and Cherokee allied forces against the Red Stick Creeks. The conflict threw the Creek Nation into chaos, bringing death and destruction and upheaval to Creek towns along the Tallapoosa and other nearby rivers and streams. Warriors were not the only ones affected. Women, children, and tribal elders were all in the line of fire. A large map in the upper right shows Indian territories including lands belonging to the Cherokee, Chickasaw, and Choctaw nations, with the Creek Nation dominating the center and right side of the map. Creek and American towns, U.S. forts, and battle sites are indicated in what is present-day East, Central, and Southern Alabama. The panel text continues with the timeline of nine battles and attacks that took place between October 27, 1813 and January 27, 1814. The U.S. assault began with the attack and destruction of the creek town of Litafuchi in the north. Two weeks later, Major General Andrew Jackson's West Tennessee militia rescued Creek National Council members under siege by Red Sticks at Talladega. Attacks and counterattacks continued the rest of the year and into the next, where, on January 27, 1,300 Red Stick warriors, their largest force of the war, surprised the Georgia militia at Calabee Creek. After repelling the attack, the militia were forced to retreat from Red Stick territory to Fort Mitchell in the east. About four feet to the right, a touchscreen kiosk, about 18 inches tall and 12 wide, is mounted vertically to a narrow exhibit panel. It's titled, The People of the Creek War. Panel text reads, A list of historical figures who participated in the Creek War reads like a who's who of the most influential and powerful people in the southeast, in the early 1800s. At this time, the touchscreen kiosk's content is not audio-described. It offers information on war participants, including Red Stick Creeks, U.S. military men, and Creeks and Cherokees allied with the U.S. If you'd like additional assistance with this exhibit, please ask any staff member. The next tour stop, titled The Battle of Horseshoe Bend, is located to the right, about four feet past the touchscreen kiosk. When ready, enter 15 on your device's keypad. Track 15. The Battle of Horseshoe Bend. Just over two minutes. The war brought fear and destruction to Creek towns, forcing many to flee their homes seeking safety. Red Stick warriors from the towns of Nuyaga, Afuski, Hilabi, Okchai, Ufala, and Fish Pond gathered in the bend of the Tallapoosa River forming the refugee settlement of Tijobilga. The name means fence or fort and referred to the barricade they built to defend themselves and hundreds of Creek women, children, and elders. In the lower third of the panel, a hand-drawn map of the area depicts Horseshoe Bend, including the Tallapoosa River enclosing it on three sides. 
Handwritten notes show the battle positions of Red Stick Creeks, as well as the American forces and their Indian allies. The Red Stick Barricade is clearly marked in the center, across the narrowest point of the peninsula. On March 24th, U.S. forces under Major General Andrew Jackson left Fort Williams and began the 52-mile march to Teobilga. Jackson commanded 3,300 men, including the Tennessee Militia, the 39th U.S. Infantry, Cherokee Warriors, and Allied Creek Warriors. Approximately 1,000 Red Stick Warriors waited behind the barricade. Immediately to the right of this panel, a life-sized display extends into the exhibit space from the corner of the room. At the midpoint, an eight-foot-tall barricade divides the space into two pie-shaped sections, each about ten feet wide at the front and ten feet deep. A red stick warrior, the top half of his face and forehead painted red, stands on the near side of the barricade, holding a painted war club. Beyond, on the opposite side, a U.S. soldier dressed in a dark blue uniform and holding a musket peers through a porthole in the barricade. A low wall, about 30 inches high, stands in front of the diorama. Continuing clockwise, follow it about three feet. The next tour stop is titled Red Stick Warrior Diorama. Enter 16 when you're ready. Track 16, Red Stick Warrior Diorama. About a minute and a half. Behind the low wall, a red stick warrior grips a war club in his right hand as he looks resolutely towards the log barricade. He wears a linen shirt and deerskin leggings with a narrow red wool sash and decorated bandolier bag draped across his torso. A white belt, decorated in a red and black diamond pattern, is wrapped around his waist and tied in front. During the winter of 1813 and 14, Red Stick Creeks built a log wall over 1,000 feet long and 5 to 8 feet high across Horseshoe Peninsula. The barricade had two rows of portholes, plus angles allowing crossfire. We know basic facts about the barricade from maps and letters from U.S. soldiers and modern archaeological research. However, we do not know its exact layout or how it was constructed. The reconstruction here incorporates the wall's known features to communicate the strength and power of the structure. The barricade replica, which sits at the right end of the low wall, can be touched by visitors to give a sense of its size and mass. Towards the left end of the wall is a four-sided rail-mounted tumbler with text that describes the events that took place the morning of the battle. To hear that text read aloud, please press the yellow button now. It's located two rows below the five on your keypad. If you'd like to continue your tour, the next stop, titled U.S. Soldier Diorama, is located on the opposite side of the barricade. Continuing to the right, move around the barricade, then enter the number 17 on your audio guide device. The Morning of the Battle About Two Minutes March 27, 1814 6.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. Preparing for Battle with 700 mounted militia led by Brigadier General John Coffey, 100 Allied Creek led by William McIntosh, and 500 Cherokee warriors, the U.S. forces crossed the Tallapoosa downriver and took up positions across the river from Teobilga. Jackson positioned the remaining 2,000 soldiers of the 39th Infantry and Tennessee Militia in front of the barricade. Approximately 1,000 Red Stick warriors with Fusky Chief Manawe waited behind their fortification, ready to defend their land and people. 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Cannon Bombardment The barricade was designed so that U.S. forces could not make a direct assault without facing many casualties. Jackson placed two cannons high on the hill, about 80 to 100 yards from the barricade. This artillery began a steady fire, attempting to knock down the defensive structure. The U.S. artillery consisted of a three-pound and a six-pound cannon, named for the weight of the cannonballs they fired. For two hours, the cannons fired more than 70 shots on the barricade, with little effect. 11.30 a.m. Cherokee Crossing Cherokee warriors waited along the bank across from Teobilga as shots from U.S. artillery rang out. Acting without orders, three Cherokee warriors, led by a warrior called the Whale, or Tukwa in Cherokee, swam across the river 
and captured red stick canoes stationed on the bank. Using the canoes, Cherokee and Allied Creek warriors began a rear assault on the red sticks. The next stop, titled U.S. Soldier Diorama, is located on the opposite side of the barricade. Continuing to the right, move around the barricade, then enter the number 17 on your audio guide device. Track 17, U.S. Soldier Diorama. About a minute and a half. Behind the low wall, a U.S. soldier holds a five-foot-long flintlock musket in his hands as he peers resolutely through a small porthole in the barricade. He wears a dark blue military coat, dark gray wool trousers, and a tall military hat. A canvas haversack and leather cartridge box is draped across his torso. On the left end of the low wall, an enclosed case holds items recovered from the Horseshoe Bend battlefield, including two small cannonballs, one about two and a half inches in diameter, or about the size of a golf ball. The other is slightly larger, at about three inches. The case also includes a tomahawk, or small hatchet, about 14 inches long, with a wood handle and metal blade. Numerous projectile points, such as stone arrowheads, as well as small round musket balls, and powder measure, a small metal pouch used to carry gunpowder. At the right end of the railing is another four-sided tumbler that tells the remaining events of the battle. To hear that text read aloud, please press the yellow button now. It's located two rows below the five on your keypad. If you'd prefer to continue your tour, the next tour stop, titled The End of the Creek War, is on the room's exterior wall immediately to the right of the diorama. When you're ready, enter 18 on your audio guide keypad. The Battle and the Aftermath About two and a half minutes Assault on the Barricade, 12.30 p.m. Jackson saw Allied Indian forces engaging Red Stick warriors behind the barricade. He gave the order to charge the barricade, delivered to the awaiting troops through a long drum roll. The 39th Infantry and Tennessee Militia began the frontal assault and breached the high wall. 12.30 p.m. to sundown. Hand-to-hand combat. The Red Sticks fought to defend their position at the barricade. The fighting was close, with bayonets, war clubs, and blades. Outnumbered three to one and facing assaults from the front and rear, the Red Sticks eventually lost their position, allowing the fighting to spread across the peninsula. Despite heavy losses, the Red Sticks refused to surrender. The U.S. attack continued until sundown. March 28, 1814. The morning after. More than 800 Red Stick warriors died at Horseshoe Bend, the largest number of American Indian deaths in a single battle in U.S. history. One of the few Red Stick warriors who managed to escape was the Okfusky chief, Manahue. On April 5th, Jackson reported that U.S. forces lost a total of 49 men, including 18 Cherokee and 5 Allied Creek. Another 152 men were wounded. Women and Children While some women and children from Tihobilga evacuated downriver to Elkahatchee Creek, many remained in the refugee settlement during the attack. No accounts describe exactly what those in the village witnessed, but we know they felt the chaos and violence of the battle. Jackson reported, I lament that two or three women and children were killed by accident. Colonel Carroll recorded the number of deaths as too many of them, women and children. While the number killed is unknown, 350 women and children were taken prisoner by the U.S. forces. The next tour stop, titled The End of the Creek War, is on the room's exterior wall immediately to the right of the diorama. When you're ready, Enter 18 on your audio guide keypad. Track 18, The End of the Creek War. Less than two minutes. The overwhelming U.S. victory over the Red Sticks at Horseshoe Bend was the last battle of the Creek War. U.S. forces remained in the Creek Nation after the battle, establishing Fort Jackson at the confluence of the Cusha and Tallapoosa Rivers. On August 9, 1814, Jackson and 35 Creek chiefs, only one a Red Stick supporter, signed the Treaty of Fort Jackson. The treaty forced the Creek Nation to cede more than half their territory, just over 21 million acres, to the United States. 
The war had destroyed 48 creek towns, including houses, property, livestock, and communal fields. Survivors were left homeless and starving. Some creeks sought refuge in Florida among the Seminoles. Those who remained slowly began to rebuild their homes, their towns, and their nation. In the center of the panel, a map of the southeastern United States indicates the Creek Nation boundaries before and after the war. Before, Creek territory included most of South and Central Georgia and what is now South and Central Alabama. After the war, Creek land was reduced approximately by half to a small section of present-day East Alabama and West Central Georgia. Additional panel text tells what happened to Andrew Jackson and Red Stick Chief Minahui after the war. To hear this text read aloud, please press the yellow button, two rows below the five, now. If you'd prefer to continue your tour, the next tour stop, titled Power Shift in the Southeast, extends at a right angle from the right side of the panel. Simply turn to your right and enter the number 19 on your keypad. Andrew Jackson and Menachui. Less than two minutes. Andrew Jackson was promoted to Major General in the U.S. Army for his leadership during the Creek War. On January 8, 1815, he led U.S. forces to victory against the British at the Battle of New Orleans. His victories in the Creek War and at New Orleans brought him national fame. Jackson used this fame to launch his political career. In 1828, he was elected the seventh president of the United States. Early in his first term, he proposed and helped pass the U.S. Indian Removal Act of 1830. Throughout his presidency, Jackson worked to remove American Indians from U.S. states, including the Cherokee and Creek Indians who helped him to victory at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. Menachwe led the Red Stick Warriors at Horseshoe Bend, where he was badly wounded. One of the very few Red Stick Warriors to survive the battle, he slipped into a canoe that night and traveled downriver to safety. After the war, Menachwe continued to be a respected leader. As a lawmender for the National Council, he helped execute the prominent Creek leader William McIntosh, after McIntosh illegally negotiated the Treaty of Indian Springs, ceding Creek land to the state of Georgia. In 1826, Menachwe and the National Council traveled to Washington, D.C. to get the Indian Springs Treaty nullified by the U.S. government. Menachwe's power did not make him immune to removal. While little is known of his journey, in the 1830s, he left the land he fought so hard to keep, relocating to Indian territory in the West. The next tour stop, titled Power Shift in the Southeast, extends at a right angle from the right side of the panel. Simply turn to your right and enter the number 19 on your keypad. Track 19. Power Shift in the Southeast. Less than two minutes. The availability of former creek lands prompted a wave of Alabama fever, as thousands moved there seeking cheap land and rich soils to cultivate cash crops such as cotton. The non-Indian population increased dramatically, from 9,000 in 1810 to 128,000 in 1820. At the same time, these aspiring planters brought enslaved African Americans with them to work the land, increasing the domestic slave trade in the region. Alabama became the 22nd state in 1819. Treaties and Extension Laws In the years following the Creek War, the Creek National Council worked to preserve Creek lands and maintain Creek political power across the region. The U.S., meanwhile, shifted from its plan of civilization for Indian tribes to a different approach, Indian removal. In 1829, Alabama extended state laws over the Creek Nation, a violation of the 1826 Treaty of Washington. The Creek National Council protested to newly elected U.S. President Andrew Jackson, all we want, we expect, and all we desired is the complete fulfillment of that treaty. President Jackson responded that if the Creeks remained on their land, they would be subject to Alabama laws, but if they moved west, they would be free to live according to their own laws. A year later, with President Jackson's strong backing, the U.S. Congress passed the Indian Removal Act of 1830. The 1830 Act began a period of major upheaval and heartbreaking changes for Creeks and other southeastern tribes. 
The next tour stop, titled The Whale Rifle, is at an exhibit case located at the right end of this panel. To get there, continue about four feet to your right, then turn left at the end of this exhibit panel. Once you're there, enter 20 on your audio guide keypad. Track 20, The Whale Rifle. Just over a minute. A five-foot-tall rifle is displayed inside a narrow plexiglass exhibit case. The elegant dark wood body is simple and polished smooth, while the silver lock and brass trigger guard are decorated with elaborate scrollwork. In 1816, U.S. President James Madison ordered a commemorative rifle to be made for the whale, or Tuqua, in Cherokee. One of the Cherokee warriors who fought with the U.S. and who also led the rear attack on Teobilga. Two rifles were ultimately made for the whale, but the historical record does not tell us whether he ever received either. An engraved silver plate is mounted to the side of the buttstock. It reads, Presented by J. Madison, President of the U.S., to whale, the reward of signal valor and heroism at the Battle of the Horseshoe, March 1814. The next stop, titled Shrinking Creek Lands, is located on the opposite side of the previous stop. To get there, follow this exhibit panel around as it turns back to the left. Then, when you're ready, enter the number 21 on your keypad. Track 21. Shrinking Creek Lands. About one minute. In treaty after treaty, negotiations between the U.S. and the Creek Nation resulted in more land for the U.S., and less for the creek. Slide the panels to learn more. Sliding panels at the left of the exhibit reveal section after section of creek land ceded to the U.S. government through 14 separate treaties signed in the nearly 100 years between 1739 and 1832. The 1832 Treaty of Washington dissolved the creek nation's tribal holdings and allotted ownership of parcels of land to individual creeks, The Creeks signed the treaty in a final attempt to keep their remaining homelands in Alabama. However, land speculators exploited many Creek, cheating them out of their land. The next stop, titled Creek Removal, takes place at a panel to the immediate right, once again along the room's exterior wall. Simply turn to your right and enter 22 on your keypad. Track 22, Creek Removal About two minutes. For thousands of years, the Creek people and their ancestors had lived in the Southeast. Now, only 50 years after the founding of the United States, the entire Creek nation faced forced removal from its ancestral homeland. Despite a second Creek War in 1836 and 1837, Creek resistance was at an end. After this second round of fighting, some participants were captured, chained together, and forced to walk most of the way to Indian Territory in present-day Oklahoma. Over the 20 years following the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, more than 23,000 Creek people were removed from their southeastern homeland. While exact numbers are not known, an estimated 3,500 Creek people died due to the removal programs of the U.S. government. Once in Indian Territory, the transplanted Muscogee Creeks had to recreate sources of livelihood, restructure their political system, and recover from years of war and dislocation. Despite the brutalities of removal, sometimes called the Trail of Tears, Muscogee Creek from 44 Talwas carried their ceremonial town fires with them, re-establishing the Talwas in Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma. In the lower section of this panel is a painted image titled Last Journey by Jerome Tiger. Against a stark white background, American Indians, with their heads bent and shoulders deeply hunched forward, walk or ride exhausted horses through the snow toward an empty horizon. At the lower left, in the foreground, a lone figure lies face down in the snow. To the right, in the corner of the room, an angled exhibit holds an interactive touchscreen kiosk titled Voices from the Muskogee. It includes interviews with Creek men and women as they remember the past, honor their ancestors, and share contemporary stories from Muscogee people. The kiosk is currently not audio-described. Please ask any staff member for assistance. The tour continues just past the corner kiosk at an exhibit panel titled The Muscogee People Today. Continue clockwise past the corner.
As the wall turns to the right, stop and enter 23 on your audio guide keypad. Track 23, The Muscogee People Today. About a minute and a half. In the lower third of the panel, a group photo shows dozens of members of the Muscogee Creek Nation in front of the Horseshoe Bend National Military Park Visitor Center. The event is the bicentennial commemoration of the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in 2014. Despite all they have endured in the past two centuries, the Muscogee remain resilient. Today's Muscogee Creeks have a thriving modern society that maintains continuing connections to their cultural past. In the center of tribal towns past and present, the town's ceremonial fires burned constantly. Throughout centuries of green corn ceremonies, stomp dances, preparing for stickball games, and countless other cultural traditions, the fire has always burned, essential to town life. Of paramount importance to the Muscogee, many tribal towns carried their ceremonial fires with them to Oklahoma during removal. Of the 44 historic tribal town fires, 16 still burn today. Continuing clockwise around the room, the next tour stop is titled Sovereign Nations Within a Nation. To get there, turn with the wall on your left side and move forward about 9 to 10 feet. You will pass an open doorway, which later you'll use to exit the museum. Stop just after you pass the door, and the exhibit will be directly in front of you. When ready, enter 24 on your keypad. Track 24. Sovereign Nations Within a Nation. Just over a minute. All federally recognized tribal nations exist as sovereign nations inside the boundaries of the United States. Tribal citizens hold dual citizenship in both the United States and the tribe. As U.S. citizens, tribal people pay U.S. taxes, vote in all local, state, and federal elections, and many serve in the U.S. military. In the lower half of the panel is a photo of the Muscogee Creek Nation National Council Supreme Court and District Court Building. Reflecting traditional Creek architecture, the mound-shaped building sits atop a grass-covered hill. If you'd like to hear additional information about tribes affiliated with Horseshoe Bend National Military Park, please press the yellow button now. The yellow button is located two rows below the five on the audio guide keypad. The next tour stop, titled Living Traditions, is found as you continue following the exhibit wall clockwise around the room. With this exhibit panel on your left, move forward and follow the wall as it turns left, then stop. When you're ready, enter the number 25 on your keypad. Affiliated Tribes of Horseshoe Bend National Military Park. About two minutes. As of 2020, 13 federally recognized tribes are affiliated with this national park site. Many trace their ancestry to creeks. Others played a role in the battle and the Creek War. The Muscogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma is the largest of several independent Creek tribal nations within U.S. boundaries. In 2020, some 87,000 people hold citizenship in the Muscogee Creek Nation, which has its own national government, including a court system, social services, and public education system. The Porch Board of Creek Indians traces its lineage to the few Creek families who managed to remain in South Alabama. These families were awarded land after allying with the United States during the Creek War. In 1984, the Porch Band of Creek Indians, whose reservation is in Escambia County, became the only federally recognized tribe in Alabama. A small angled shelf extends in front of the right lower edge of the exhibit panel. It reads, Other Creek groups include three independent tribal towns in Oklahoma, the Alabama Quasarte Tribal Town, the Kelegi Tribal Town, and the Tapthotco Tribal Town as well as the Quasadi tribe of Louisiana and the Alabama Quaswade tribe of Texas. Additional affiliated tribes include Cherokee Nation, Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indians, Miccosukee Indian Tribe, Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, Seminole Tribe of Florida, United Kituwa Band of the Cherokee Indians. The next tour stop, titled Living Traditions, is found as you continue following the exhibit wall clockwise around the room. With this exhibit panel on your left, move forward and follow the wall as it turns left, then stop. When you're ready, enter the number 25 on your keypad.
Track 25, Living Traditions. About two minutes. On the right end of this exhibit panel, just past a small angled shelf about 30 inches above the floor, panel text reads, Muscogee cultural traditions remain a central part of Creek life today. The Green Corn Ceremony, or Poshkida, is an annual multi-day ceremony in late summer that celebrates the corn harvest and a new year. It is not only a time of celebration, but an occasion for renewal and forgiveness. During the Poshkida and other cultural events, participants perform traditional stomp dances. Walking in line around a fire, a leader begins a song with a call and receives a chorus of men's voices in response. The women, wearing leg rattles, stomp as they walk, producing a distinctive rhythm that accompanies the call and response of the song. Near the center of this exhibit wall, above the angled shelf, Muscogee can shakers are displayed inside a plexiglass case. Each shaker is made of tin cans, such as soup cans, stripped of their original labels, filled with rocks, and wired together in five stacks of four cans each. The stacks of cans are, in turn, wired to leather straps at the top and bottom that tie around the dancer's lower legs. In a nearby freestanding exhibit case, traditional turtle shell rattles are displayed under plexiglass. Eight shells each about four inches wide and eight inches long and drilled with multiple holes, are fastened together with leather cord. The groups of shells are in turn fastened to leather straps that tie around the dancer's lower legs. The next stop, titled The Muscogee Language, is located around the corner from this panel. With the exhibit on your left, move forward, turn left, and stop. When you're ready, enter 26 on your audio guide keypad. Track 26, The Muscogee Language, about a minute and a half. On the right side of the panel, a round medallion shows a man and boy in silhouette, sitting beneath an open shelter in front of a warm fire. The man points to the distant hill-covered horizon. Encircling the image are the words, Muscogee Language Preservation Program. Below their feet, text reads, Learn it or lose it. 200 years ago. Muscogee was the most commonly spoken language in the Creek Nation. British traders first used the term Creek to identify the Muscogee people along the Ojisi Creek, which is the present-day Okmulgee River in Georgia. English speakers continued to use the word Creek for the tribal towns in Alabama and Georgia. The name became so pervasive that the terms Creek and Muscogee were often used interchangeably to describe both the people and their language. Today, the Muscogee language is still found across Alabama and Georgia in towns, counties, creeks, and rivers named hundreds of years ago. Variations of town names can also be found in Oklahoma, where the Muscogee people reestablished many tribal towns with names from their southeastern homeland. Today, in the Muscogee Creek Nation, the Muscogee language program preserves the Creek language by connecting with tribal elders to teach modern Creeks their ancestral language. This concludes all of the tour stops located inside the Visitor Center's museum. Before you exit and return your device to the information desk, please enter 27 on your audio guide device. Track 27. Thank you for visiting. About a minute and a half. There are only two exits from the museum and each return to the Visitor Center's lobby. One near the Muscogee Language Exhibit, which is also where you first entered the gallery, and the other by the Sovereign Nations Within a Nation panel. At the Sovereign Nations exit, there is a wall-mounted kiosk inviting visitors to tell us what you think. The kiosk is not currently described, but we invite you to share your thoughts with the rangers and staff when you return your device. As you pass through the Sovereign Nations exit, a poem is displayed on an angled wall. It's titled Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings by Joy Harjo. U.S. Poet Laureate and member of the Muscogee Creek Nation. It reads, When we made it back home, back over those curved roads that wind through the city of peace, we stopped at the doorway of dusk as it opened to our homelands. We gave thanks for the story, for all parts of the story, because it was by the light of those challenges we knew ourselves. We asked for forgiveness we laid down our burdens next to each other.
please return your audio guide device to the information desk, which is located near the center of the room across from the museum exits. Our staff is delighted to answer any questions or offer any additional assistance you may need. On behalf of the National Park Service, thank you for visiting Horseshoe Bend National Military Park.